Hola, mi gente. We're talking about the new Latino gang, which is by far one of my favorite topics to talk about in the context of this course. It emerges for me as an object of analysis as a result of teaching this class um, at a time where I was thinking about what reggaeton was starting to mean now that it has invaded academia where everyone was talking about it. But see, reggaeton, for me, I remember its rough ride to glory as the documentary on its origins uh, puts in the spotlight. I remember the controversies of places like in Peru that they wanted to actually make it illegal to perrear. So yes, it has a lot of academic import, or it, but it emerges also in a space where our activism and academia converge, right? And for me, that was the new Latino gang because I saw myself also not only as an academic, which is probably like on the list of uh, ways I define myself, not at the top, definitely as an artist, everything I think about is related to putting art into the world, but also as an activist, See, my existence is an act of activism, right? And I was thinking about this over the break um, because I was supposed to record an episode talking about the beauty industries, and then I was going to write something specifically on the beauty industry. But what I couldn't make sense of is why is this a topic, one, that I go back to? A lot of my early writings um, were on the beauty industry, but why does it haunt me in a particular way? Because I think about these things in a very deeply personal way that keeps me up at night. And then it hit me. A lot of it has to do with the fact that my mother growing up was a beautician. Now we call them stylists or, you know, uh, a skincare. Man, they made these clinical terms now. Uh, at the spa, but growing up, you know, it was a blanket term. You know, my mom did it all, nails, hair. She went to beauty school, right? And that had a lot of weight in our home, especially because of what she associated with beauty, which definitely was not the genetic expressions that me and my sister had because my father is black. And so I didn't learn about these parts of me because my mother made it a point to try to whitewash them, right? This happens not only in life, it happens in our work. We hear it in our histories where we don't see ourselves in it, but always in a particular light when we do. And I was thinking about all these things because really it's an ugly business, right? It's recession-proof, the beauty industry, but it chips away also sometimes at our sense of health and self. And when you come from a complicated background, as I did, you know, racially, ethnically, um, historically, politically, economically, I mean, it, it makes it very difficult for you to be grounded. But I'm going to revisit that topic on beauty at the end of this journey. I think it will be a way to go full circle, especially putting forth uh, the voice that I feel I would like to be in harmony with, this, this new Latino gang. And what does that mean, right? Now think about it. Gang is a term that has been weaponized against Latino communities historically, right? It is always uh, correlated with deviancy and crime, um, which there are gangs that exist. I mean, Mara Sarvatrucha, you have uh, guerrillas like in La Farc, in Colombia, right? Like th those are 
violent extreme groups, right? But see, a gang, a clan, a community also gives people a sense of belonging. Think about it. Like, uh, especially that's why people have joined gangs historically, right? To have some sense of a structure. Sometimes it replaces kin, but independently, right? What does a new Latino gang point to, right? And for me, I was scrolling um, on Instagram more than I think I should, right? But um, I was traveling and as much as I do understand and speak French, I was not feeling the television. I just wasn't. I was tired. I was uh, confronted with so many civil disorder. Like, honestly, when I was in Paris, it felt like I was in Argentina. And so it made sense why Ruben Darío the Costa Rican writer called Buenos Aires the Paris of Latin America, right? But there's something obviously clear in the architecture. And let us not forget the president or one of the founding fathers of Argentina um, was inspired by France. At one point in Argentina's invention, um, he wanted the official language to be French as another means to kind of distinguish Argentina from its neighbors, something that he definitely lays out and has been laid out by other writers. So in civilization and barbarism, basically it, it channels this idea that in Argentina they were going to be this French space, right, in, in a region of disorder, but interestingly enough, it's also socially, like I remember living in Argentina during the economic crisis when the country basically imploded um, and you could go into the streets and you smell the burning tires. You hear the, the, um, the pots and pans being banged on. Um, now in the context of New York, when I think of pots and pans, I think about seven o'clock during the pandemic, how we all used to, um, you know, bang on them as a way to show our gratitude for health workers, people who were on the front line, essential workers, um, delivery uh, guys who, who were, you know, dropping off food, all those heroes unsung. Um, that's what I associate with. But before that, the sound of pots and pans was deeply rooted in civil strife in Argentina during the economic crisis. So it was interesting for me to be in Paris as their these protests because they raised the the age of retirement from 62 to 64, right? And in France, there is a big culture of respecting, honoring, and living for a work-life balance, which is very different, I think, than a lot of other places, particularly in the United States. Um, but also, I thought of myself always as a worker or rather a creator. So this idea of retiring when you're an artist is like so weird, right? Um, and so I was like 64. You're fighting for 64. Wow. Um, that speaks to the culture, right? The social conditions that you can feel like a right to, to fight for that. But sometimes, and I think about this in terms of our communities, we're just fighting to exist, right? We're fighting, you know, 64, that's a long-term plan. I want a job. I want to feel as if my rights are respected, like I'm in control of my body, that I have autonomy, that if I raise a concern that it is heard, that there is a means of having justice, right? Or at least fighting for it. 
That's why I always say, like, how are you talking about these issues and don't see yourself as an activist, right? Because your words are supposed to activate. I'm sure Augusto Boal and Freire, um, they saw themselves as artists, but they knew that their work had an activating potential. And that's when I think about the new Latino gang and what this new generation of voices that emerge in these spaces that are inherently political. Now, J Balvin, um, the reggaeton uh, artist from Colombia, there's a great documentary, The Boy from Medellin, on his um, trajectory. But I remember when he was going to be one of the acts for the Miss Universe concert, I mean, or pageant, and uh, which, you know, that's a whole different ball game um, to talk about the objectification of women and its relationship to nationalism, given that it's the only time women are able to represent the nation, right? Um, or even that nations that are not allowed to actually represent themselves get a chance to, yes, I'm looking and thinking about you, Puerto Rico. But all this to say, early on when Trump was emerging as a presidential candidate and he was talking all that nonsense about, you know, Mexicans being rapists and and all that horrible, you know, old school rhetoric racism that he spewed from his pulpit, <laughs> J Balvin came out, one of the first artists, and he, it was going to be like his opportunity to break into the mainstream, right? And he pulled out of the pageant because he was against what Trump had said. And he said that he himself has worked side by side with the people he was talking about. He himself, you know, he worked as a painter. He saw solidarity and the need to use his platform to put a position forth. So yes, his music is great. I love the beats, but his politics were important because then other Latino artists started to follow suit and speak up. And sometimes you need someone to just create that spark. And for many of us that are working in these spaces where we're underrepresented, where we're kind of trying to blaze a trail, right? And, and, and break down some of these barriers that keep us from being part of the center, right? Like we're tired of being marginalized. This week on The Daily Show, uh, John Leguizamo is the host as they were alternating after Trevor Noah left, right? And it was the first time that we have a Latino host there. And I thought this is great. And he himself was playing with the idea of, you know, we didn't even know what his Hispanic uh, History Month was. And he was making jokes. He was self-deprecating, but he was also very critical um, and, and talking about how is it that we're such a significant part of the population just in a sheer numbers game, right? This is always the threat and the fear of the browning of America. And yet, right, we are not represented equitably or positively by and large in film and television, which is a big issue, right? But this is what's great about also platforms like Netflix and and Hulu, where we're able also to use and understand these texts, these cultural texts in television and film, emerging from voices and places that perhaps 
in mainstream Hollywood, we would not hear see, right? And so for me, um, it is a delicate balance and it is important for us to have representation, but also it can't be representation for the sake of representation because then John Leguizamo had as his guest, um, Anna Navarro, who's a you know, news pundit, she's on The View and she started conflating communism with socialism. And she's on this platform. She walks out for this interview in her ball gown. And it was just bananas to me because then I'm like, wow, that's a particular type of political perspective that is very much a result of, you know, the Cuban exile community in Miami, right? Where communism is, is you know, it is the bane of their existence. I mean, this is why you go to Miami and you'll hear people say loving DeSantis, right? Being like, he's great. He's, you know, he gets us, he sees us, he's anti-communism. And she starts talking about like, you know, socialism and how it's against the free press and it's against, you know, I, I, I mean, all the things actually that she pointed towards were communism and to conflate those two is very problematic, right? And also we have a lot of socialized aspects of our government here in the United States, like the mail system, our veteran services, you know, we just don't want to socialize things like education and healthcare because that would change, right? The way the power structure and paradigms exist in this country, the status quo, because that's the thing. If people are educated, people can be liberated, right? Because sometimes the biggest obstacle to moving forward is not seeing ourselves as worthy leaders, right? Why do I need to wait for a savior when I have all the tools and weapons to save myself and my community? And it's an interesting, you know, conversation because it's one that has existed since the very beginning of Latinidad or, you know, uh, of how we've seen ourselves. And I think about this in terms of the journey we've taken thus far. We start off thinking about how are we a people at a crossroads and why is it that the United States and the rest of the Americas cannot see themselves as one? How have these divisions impacted not only our sense of belonging and community, but the directions that we need to take in order to advance in a way that's equitable, that is fair, and that is just? And so then we start thinking about el pueblo, the people. What does that mean? Are we uh, separated as we used to be before because of distance? Now, the compression of time and space has allowed us to think about, you know, virtual pueblos or the ways that we connect and create meaning, despite the fact that there are many differences that within Latin America and the Caribbean, right? Um, to, to conflate and homogenize and essentialize is a problem. But I think there are also tropes and stereotypes that we could also come together to see as a problem. Um, you know, everything below the, the United States is always represented as a land of disorder, right? As a land of high in crime. But there are a lot of parallels. And also, how do you divorce them from things like Blanc Condor or things like all those, you know, coups that were supported by the United States in places like Chile, Argentina, and Brazil, right? And what happens as a result of creating and dismantling, right? Uh, you then start seeing the negotiations around gender. And this is why you could read Jo Perreo Sola and you could read 
you men, right? Hombres necio by Sor Juana and see how they're in conversation with each other. You know, sometimes the more things change, the more they stay the same. And the fact that women are still trying to, to, to fight for bodily autonomy that's happening here in our backyard here in the United States, but in places like El Salvador, where a woman can sit in jail because she's accused of having a botched abortion when in fact she had a miscarriage those are the struggles we're still fighting and this is why when we speak on them simply by speaking on them because they're so silenced because they're so taboo we are activating right and even in our truths we are creating art right windows and mirrors when we start looking at the things where we can find ourselves or the things where we can look into other worlds to understand also ourselves, right? The way I started understanding what it meant to be Latino was at the beginning looking at these stories where they showed the American family and not seeing myself in them. Now, it's really ironic because one of the quintessential American stories is Little House on the Prairie. My mother named me not after the actual character, but the actress who played her. I wrote a short story on this. Um, it's called Call Me Mel, Save the Bees. And you can find it on Synapsis, um, the medical humanities journal. But basically, my mother was obsessed with the prairie life, settler society, which in the back of my mind, there's also this undercurrent in those stories of like indigenous violence and displacement, which was happening also in the world my mother was born into in rural Colombia. So I wonder if she saw parallels in that way but she loved the fact it was a small town they congregated the church was like you know everything to them um and in many ways my mother held on to those ideas because that's what it meant to be american now american for her uh was interesting because it meant citizenship right but she's always been america since Colombia is part of this hemisphere, but the way she saw herself as an American or Colombian American, it, it, it was a way to also have rights that are protected, right? Um, because maybe in her country of origin or many of our communities of origin, the idea of being a citizen does not necessarily come with the ability to make decisions to control your future. And when I was cloning on Instagram, I heard Gustavo Cerati, one of those old clips, and he talks about the only way we're going to have a strong future is if we're looking back and understanding our past. And then it makes a lot of sense how these blind spots are created, you know, or, or are contrived with purpose. So if I don't see that, you know, I come from of people who were not passive recipients of the oppression that were constantly working, fighting, existing, thriving, then it changes the way I see myself or it allows me to be inspired. And I think about Brazil in this way because my biggest uh, influence in terms of my pedagogic practice come from Augusto Boal and Fedi, right? I do believe education should be for everyone. 
I don't think that it should be an exclusive thing. And I know this is ironic given the fact that I'm currently teaching at New York University, but I am also a product of New York University. I went there as an undergraduate. I went there for a master's. And even if people say opportunity programs got me through the door, they did not keep me there. That's not the reason why I graduated with honors. And that is not the reason why I'm here teaching in a department which interestingly enough, as an undergraduate, told me that maybe anthropology was not my thing. But my sense of conviction and also the arts gave me an opportunity to carve out a space in a field where historically I was other. Now I am an ethnographer. Now I am an activist. Now I understand the power that comes with the way I understand and engage with the world. And for me, music has been an essential part. So thinking about new song and rock nacional, Serati, who kind of brought this all into focus for me, the need to look back in order to move forward, are part of those movements that I came of age with. And in the same way, rock nacional plays such a critical role for me in terms of like my politics, you know, being okay with being different in a traditional household, right? That's hard when you grow up with these subcultures because yes, I lived in New York City, but also, you know, I grew up in a very, very closed off community. So I think of, if you've ever seen Waco, Texas, the show on Showtime and The Kingdom, which is currently on, on Netflix, it's a show of kind of uh, the enmeshment of politics and, and, and Protestant Catholic industries in Argentina. If I marry those two, that's kind of the best description of the world I grew up in. And gender roles were very rigid. So even me going to school was very controversial. And it became the way I saw out of this world, or rather the way I was going to build a world that I felt was just and which I belong and was true to me. Now, I think about this in terms of justice and the need to think of it as a moving target, because that's the thing, because we're playing catch up with our truths and our history, it just seems the idea of justice moves farther. But as long as we're moving in that direction, and think about all these advancements that have happened that put to shame many other, you know, civilized societies, and I'm using air quotes, in Argentina, uh, they legalized gay marriage and adoption. And that was something I was very much invested on. And I was working in the United States. I was in New York. I was writing my dissertation, but I was still part of the movement because that's the wonderful thing about the internet, right? And our ability to communicate and to be invested and participate actively despite distance, right? Because that's the thing. It's just physical distance. We, Our presence can be activated, can be made part of these actions. And I think that's important for us as we're moving forward, thinking about what's this new Latino gang as a concept well, it's about activism, right? It's about existing on your own terms. It's about creating and not thinking just of resilience, right? And what is activism, right? If we just break it down, I think of Alice Walker, one of my favorite writers, and she says, activism is my rent for living on the planet. I get it. 
Now, the thing is to work or make money or to earn a reputation, uh, that also is something that is interesting because it puts into focus the various articulations of activisms, the various forms. And so I wanted to break that down a bit. What is activism? Well, activism consists of efforts to promote, impede, or direct social, political, economic, or environmental change, environmental change, or stasis with the desire to make improvements in society and to correct social injustice. Now, activism is simply taking action to affect social change, and these may not necessarily be, they can be small, but they all matter. And this can occur in a myriad of ways, and again, in varying forms. So forms of activism range from writing letters to newspapers to boycott, as I mentioned with J Balvin, or preferentially patronizing businesses, right? Think about how it was so important to order food during the pandemic. I ordered out the most because I knew the importance of maintaining these businesses that also employ by and large my community, restaurants, service industries. My brothers have a restaurant in Miami and I, it really caused them great stress to know that if they were not open, if they were not serving, uh, they were not going to be able to eat. And so the community understanding you know, the value and them also constantly giving back supported them. And so they actually probably made more money from delivery during the pandemic than they did open because people felt even buying their food was an act of activism, right? Rallies, street marches, strikes, sit-ins, and hunger strikes are other ones that, again, we see in various ways. There was a hunger strike going on in immigration detention centers to highlight the injustices that were going on. We still use these tools, right? And sometimes our act of activism is the businesses that we buy into, the concepts we buy into and support and perpetuate and advance. One can also express activism through different forms like art. And so, for example, daily acts of protest, such as not buying clothes from a certain clothing company because they exploit workers, is one form of activism. Putting this into you know, an image, photography, painting about it, that is as well. Often activism is concerned with how to change the world through social, political, economic, and or environmental change. This can be led by individuals, but it's often done collectively through social movements, right? And that's the thing. In order to activate, you can't think of yourself as an individual, Because the idea is that what you do, what you say, what you put out into the universe is going to then create a change. And that change happens in someone else too, right? That's how we create communities of change, ripple effects. An activist is a person who campaigns for some kind of social, political, economical, and environmental change. Someone who is actively involved in protests that can bring social, political, environmental change is an activist, but so is taking action to bring the change, right? So I tell my mother all the time, despite our complicated relationship, that she was my first feminist icon because my mother's existence, my mother's testimony to the fact that her making decisions that were against the status quo 
that were, you know, they, they were not guaranteed. And taking those chances is the reason why in one generation, I am telling these stories on this platform. My grandmother did not learn to read until much later in life when she went to the church, which is kind of why, you know, the church community for my mother was so powerful and dominating in her life because they gave her access to read. My mother also didn't go to, you know, primary school. And so to think that she was like, I'm going to invest everything I can in your education so you can create a world on your terms. That's an act of activism, of sacrifice, but it causes a ripple effect, right? Because even though, and let us not forget, this is the last time I'm teaching this course at NYU in this department. It is not the last time I will talk about these issues that are important to me. I will find the platform. I will continue to create and I will share my stories. I will connect. I will activate. I will belong and I will be still a voice, right? That I use and I lift in harmony, in choir with mi gente. Many people can be classified as activists and many actions can be interpreted as activism. But this doesn't mean that all activism is carried out by activists. Now, it is important to understand the various methods of activism. There are some standard methods of modern activism, like volunteering, volunteering on your own or with interested groups to help. Um, think about, you know, the environmental groups that form to protect the rainforest. You have individuals that have taking it upon themselves to protect the trees. They camp out to make sure that they are not deforested. I mean, their act, their sacrifice is literally allowing for me to breathe a little easier, right? There's grassroots activism, and I was always very much involved in this type of uh, work. One, because of the community that I live, Lower East Side, Think about if you ever saw Rent, uh, the musical, that says one part of the story. But in the Lower East Side, you also had the Young Lords, which are the Puerto Rican um, activists that were basically having sit-ins and also having protests so we can have bilingual education in schools, so we can have free breakfast. And that type of activism is in my DNA. My grandfather, he was uh, part of the uh, independence movement in Puerto Rico. He was blacklisted as a sugar cane cutter when he started organizing to help support the work of Albizu Campos. And so this is in my DNA. And I always say, I take everything personal, the ozone layer, right? Like I was always like, let's fight, let's change it. But I had to kind of be born a fighter. I had no choice, right? Imagine being a young queer, brown, poor girl with disabilities and a hyper dysfunctional home trying to get an education, right? In a family where, you know, I was told by many verbatim, I wish you had not gone to college because I would have liked you more. Like that's bananas. But see, I see their trauma when you hear things like that. And that's why the Latino, new Latino gang to me was so appealing as a concept. Because how do we take the very things that have been used to tear us down to build and uplift? 
And so grassroots activism, it entails to join community or other groups and then engage in things like tabling. And you see this a lot around also public awareness of certain issues. Like, hello, if you live in places like Flint, Michigan, don't drink the water because it'll make you sick. Or if you're in Newark, right, where you had also issues related to the water. And so these rights to exist are attached to various social determinants of health. And so to me, activism, especially in our communities, which are so marginalized or could be economically and socially disenfranchised, at the end of the day, existing is the act of activism, right? I think about this in terms of the histories, even of the dirty war. My husband was a child of that era. And the weight of that history is in his heart and on his shoulders, right? Because it's like there's a survival guilt, but there's also this desire to tell, to exist, to share. Maybe that's what drives me. I'm a child who grew up, you know, in the crack epidemic in the Lower East Side. I saw many of the parents, friends, loved ones die of AIDS. It was a death sentence before, right? And so it definitely shaped my perspective and my need to use my time on this earth in a way to make a change. And I know it's very idealistic. What do you want to change the world? But in how I live my life, I can do that. In the way you live your life, you can too. Now, and I've worked in various forms of, uh, of activism, right? Like even when I worked at the United Nations or when I worked at Congress, I saw what I was doing in that vein and that's what kept me on track and focused. You know, I work currently in an advertising agency where I apply my uh, knowledge or my skill, expertise, whatever you want to call it, to making sure that our work is culturally optimized and that we are engaging with the target audience, which is for me and my work, the Latino community by and large, making sure that they make better decisions, informed ones on their health. That is activism for me. And that's the thing. What do you do in your life that you're passionate about that you can't stop doing that? It pulls you. And maybe that's where you act. An important issue with demos or, or these ideas uh, of, of, you know, testing the waters on issues is that it tends to be more around like numbers and, and graphs. Like I work surveying in Western Queens, the needs of the community for community impact study to understand where would be the best places to have these mobile HIV vans, right? But I knew also that the people who we were targeting Chances are were undocumented. They were forced into a labor market by their circumstances and lack of opportunity that was dangerous, precarious. And also talking about these things culturally are just not our thing, right? Like we love silences, stigmas, taboos. I mean, this is again in the DNA of Latino culture because of the Catholic church, right? Like honestly, at the end of the day, like, Latin America was colonized most effectively by the cross and the sword. We're culturally Catholic. And what that means is that talking about sex is still something that is not freely done, right? It's, it's, it's thought of as, you know, being uh, uh, 
over-sexualized, which is an existing stereotype of Latino women. But I want to make sure that these women who are working in these places, and I'm talking about a lot of these women were working in brothels that I was trying to target to understand what are their needs so we could serve them. We're not going to talk about the work that they were engaged in. And so when I was testing them in the brothels, in the bathrooms for HIV, many of them would tell me things like, well, I'm a virgin. And I'm like, okay, but still take the test. Like, you know, trying to like the truth that they needed at that moment, I needed to validate it, right? Because that was their way of also protecting themselves and of me building trust. Because at the end of the day, they took the test, right? And so that was my activism, right? Like, I will believe and validate your truth, but I need you to trust the information I'm giving you is in your best interest. Like, how do you do that, right? And for me, if you think of the way the classic activism model process is, step one, identify the problem to be solved. Step two, find the proper practices. Step three, tell people the truth about the problem and the proper practices. And step four, exhort, inspire, and bargain with people to get them to support the proper practices. But sometimes you don't have room for negotiation You don't have time to explain truth. Truth sometimes is just what it is, self-evident. Now, I think of all the ways in which also technology has shifted activism, particularly in Latin America, but thinking about it in the context of the United States. In 1999, the World Trade Organization protests in Seattle, if there were no mobile phones, we would not know what happened, right? Like, honestly, the media was reporting one thing, and then we had facts, facts in the form of pictures and audio that told us, right, who was basically being attacked, not the, the that the perpetrators were actually the victims. 2006, because of text messaging, we knew what was happening in the California immigration protests. In 2010, the Arab Spring, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and blogs changed how we understood it. And the thing is, at the end of the day, you think about even 2011 with the Tottenham riots. Um, I want to just pull a quote that made me really think about this relationship between technology, activism, and Latin America. And it was by Alec Ross. He's Hillary Clinton's senior advisor in 2011, but he hit it right on the nail when he says the internet is the Che Guevara of the 21st century and hierarchies are being leveled. And that the internet it, it, it really changed and provided a revolutionary space to pursue various forms of justice too, where perhaps they are not as available to everyone. So again, thinking about the cause for change, the need for people and the impact technology can have to facilitate that is pretty impactful and important for us to think about because at the end of the day, activism is a doctrine of practice that emphasizes direct rigorous action, especially in support of or opposition to one side of a controversial issue. But what does it look like? What does it sound like? To me these days, it sounds like reggaeton. To me, it looks like, you know, Cardi B. Now, That's what I like. But what is activism? What does activism 
do? Why does it happen? And why people step up to activate? Now, think about it. Can social change occur without activism? How does one become an activist? What are ways activists use to express themselves? So there has to be a purpose, an outcome, and a process. So why is this change needed? What is the desired change and how to get the desired change? Who or what determines the need for activism? How does that play a role in predicting the success? Now think about it, it's personal. How do you feel about this? And how do you feel that you can activate? One of the most life-changing questions I was asked in a classroom was by Dr. Matt Brim, who teaches at College of Staten Island. He was a mentor to me, a dear friend. And I remember going into queer studies, which was what got me through my anthropology program because of the community. Also, it was where there was the most diverse students. I had, you know, uh, a Brazilian uh, peer who was such a great friend to me because he knew that I struggled. I didn't necessarily fit in my program. I don't think I fit in many places, but I was okay with that. But where I found community was in this small queer classroom where Matt Brim, when I was about to give up, I almost left my program. I almost let them tell me who I was or who I could be, right? I had the chair of my program, or now he's the chair, ask me that, uh, how did I get into the program? Clearly in my other programs, I had come from NYU, they needed a Latina in the program. And sometimes it's activism that really allows me to see their issues with me in a new light. Again, remember, I'm the other who now has become the ethnographer. And I speak about things from experience. That's my evidence. But yeah, I get the theory too. And I could give it to you. I could dish it. Now, Matt turns to me and he just asked me this question that every time I feel like I don't want to create, like I don't want to write, I don't want to tell when I implode because I get through that, right? I think us artists, uh, us feelers, us thinkers um, know that we'll never retire, that this is just how we are. And he asked me, what type of activist do you want to be? And that's exactly where I want to leave this episode and ask you, what type of activist do you want to be? Because an inaction in our world on our issues is an action.